Well, my name is not Kevin. My name is Tony. If you're visiting with us, uh, it is a privilege to be in the house of the Lord together. I uh, think about the words of the psalmist who says, uh, I was glad when they said unto me, let us come into the house of the Lord. And there is no better place that I would rather be than with God's people in God's house. And so I really mean that. That's not just a slogan. That's not just to convince you to come to church more. Uh, our family was out last week. We had a blast, but man, it was exciting to be with God's people this morning. And so I pray that you've been as excited to be in God's house as I've been, to be in Sunday school, to be in fellowship with one another, to discuss God's word together with one another, to apply God's word together. Uh, This morning we've been able to sing God's word together, and now we're here to, uh, to look at God's word together once again. And so I pray that you're as excited as I am to dive into God's holy word. Today's sermon title is simply, The Word Became Flesh, right from verse 14. Right from verse 14. Words are important. Words matter. Words have meaning. Words carry power with them. I think about the the phrase that we used to say as a kid that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or perhaps you've you've said, you know, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me, sticks on you, you know. These clever little phrases were used to to help us cope as children uh, with the the power of words. That that words really do have power. Yes, physically, words aren't hurting us. Sticks and stones may break our bones. Words will never hurt us. But words do carry power. They carry meaning. And some of you may be like me and use words very flippantly. That without thinking, I say things that I immediately regret. It gets me in a lot of trouble, and perhaps you're like me. I think about the day and age we're in today with Facebook. People are using words flippantly. Whatever whatever comes to mind is immediately shared and posted. And you can't take words back, right? Once things are uttered, they are there forever. Perhaps you may forget about them, but perhaps the offended party never forgets. Words carry power. There, There are some, though, when they speak you know they've crafted words and sentences carefully. And when such people speak, they speak with precision. They speak with power. They speak with authority. And when we hear those types of people speaking, we can't help but stop and listen. What are they going to say? What does it mean? When these people speak, it is worth your time. Words are powerful. And this morning, John introduces us not to just any set of words, but in particular to the word. There is something that is greater than all the words in the universe, he says. This word is more important than any of the other words. This word is more powerful than any other word in the universe. This word carries and matters more than anything else in this universe. And John says, this word became flesh. This word dwelt among his people. This word is not an abstract thought, but this is a deity. It is a person, and this person is Jesus. And John helps us to see this morning that this word, this powerful word, is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And so uh, so Paul, so John introduces us to this word this morning. I have three points I think that will help us as we consider John's words concerning the word he said there's three points, the introduction of the word, verses 1 through 3. We'll see the mission of this word in verses 4 and 5, again in verse 9 and then 14. 
And then we'll see the reception, the reception of the word in verses 6 through 13. And so with that, I'm going to pray for us just one more time, and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, again, I'm thankful, thankful for the privilege it is to be in your house, to be called a son of you. Father, it's a privilege that comes with great joy that we have fellowship with a holy God, that the God of all creation condescends to his creation, that we might have life, that we might have light, that you might expose our evil deeds and help us to trust in Christ, who is the true light, John says. And so, Father, I pray that as we gather now, as we look at the the beginning of the Gospel of John, that you will, uh, by your Spirit, work in the hearts of your people. We, We need you. We need you to help us to apply these words to our life. Father, I pray that as we consider Jesus becoming flesh, being born in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem, uh, that we would understand the significance of such an event, that our lives would be radically different because of the gospel. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to me, through me. For the sake of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we want to begin with point number one, the introduction of the word. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you notice immediately that John's introduction is quite different than all of the other gospels. For instance, Matthew, we looked at Matthew uh, the first week of the Advent, tracing the genealogy from Abraham to Joseph, which is Mary's wife. Then we move to the birth of Jesus. We get the nativity scene. Mark begins immediately introducing us to some dude named John the Baptist. And then we get the baptism of Jesus and we get the ministry of Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, he, he begins by saying, I've taken a careful account of everything. I've interviewed eyewitnesses. What I'm telling you is straight up facts. And then he begins to, to talk about the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Jesus. But John's gospel starts different. Notice again verses 1 through 3. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John begins different in this way. He immediately moves from the humanity of Jesus to the deity of Jesus. John is concerned to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God in flesh. John doesn't start in the first century in the little town of Bethlehem. John starts at creation. John says, in the beginning was the Word, that the Word existed apart from creation. He has always existed. He echoes the words of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's also interesting that John doesn't begin by mentioning Jesus by name. No, he mentions him as the Word. What an interesting way to start his gospel account. Why? Why, John? Why would you choose to use the word word to describe Jesus? This this word is the Greek word for logos. What's interesting is this word was important not just to the Jewish people, but also to the Greeks as well. Uh, I have a quote from John MacArthur I I think will help us understand the significance of this word logos. He says this, To the Greek philosophers, the logos was the impersonal, 
abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. It was in some sense a creative force and also the source of wisdom. So to the Jew, I mean to the Greek rather, I'm sorry, the word logos was this abstract thing that contained power, that created, had creative power. And so this is helpful as we understand this word logos, but also consider from the Jews' perspective. He says the word of the Lord was also a significant Old Testament theme well known to the Jews. The word of the Lord was the expression of divine power and wisdom. And so for the people of God, the Jewish people, they understood that power and action came with the word of God. For example, John is taking us back to creation in his echoing of Genesis 1. Remember the first words that God speaks? What does he say? Let there be light. And what happens? Scripture says, and then there was light. The word of the Lord spoke and things happened. Molecules moved. I don't know how light is made, but God made it happen with his voice. Let there be light. As we consider, uh, continue to read through Genesis chapter 1, everything that God creates, he creates using his voice. He speaks and things happen. And so the Jewish people understood that God's word was filled with power and it demands action. There's also an understanding as we consider the Old Testament that God's word was also associated with salvation. For instance, in Psalm 107 verse 20, it says God sent out his word and it healed them. They delivered them from their destruction. And so why does John use the word logos? Why does he say the word was in the beginning with God? Ah, he's, he's combining these understandings from the Jew and the Greek to help them to see the power of God, the power of Christ. He's using a common word that both Jew and Greek understood to be associated as a starting point of everything. They may have different takeaways of how they understood the word, but they were going to see the significance of it when Jesus comes in flesh. So this is why John uses the word logos. It's also important as we consider the word to consider that from the book of Malachi to the New Testament is roughly 400 years of silence from God. There were no prophets. There was no word of the Lord. It was silence. And in John's gospel account, he breaks the silence by saying, Behold, the word is spoken. He was in the beginning with God. And so the silence is broken in John's gospel account with the simple words, the word. As one author says, God was now preparing to speak his greatest and most powerful word to mankind, and that is Jesus. And so this is how we begin the gospel of John. The author of Hebrews would tell us that, God's, that Jesus is God's final word to mankind. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our Father by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. So this is why John uses the word logos. The word became flesh. Verses 1 through 3 again, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice that he says the Word was in the beginning. What John is doing here is pointing us to the fact that Jesus has always existed, that he is separate from creation. It wasn't as if on the first day when God began to create, he created the Word. No, John says in the beginning, the Word was already there. The Word has always existed. 
The, the verb was that's used in these two verses, it's, it's used in the imperfect tense, which just simply means something that has happened and continues to happen. And so it's this past action that re- refers to a continual action. And so literally we could say in the beginning was continuing the word. It wasn't that the word was created, but it has always existed. Even Jesus, when he prays to the Father in John chapter 17, this is what he says. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word has always existed, John says. The next phrase, John says, he says, the word was with God. The word with here is not just implying that he was with God. The the word implies intimacy. It implies nearness. It implies a face-to-face. And it implies relationship. And so when John says the word was with God, what John is saying is that there has been this great intimacy with the Father and the Son for all eternity. He wasn't just standing by God's side. No, no, no. There was intimacy between the two. And then John tells us with great boldness, the word was God. That everything God the Father was and is, is to be true of the Son, to be true of the Word. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, the exact meaning is that the Word was God in essence and character. He was God in every way, though he was a separate person from God the Father. The phrase perfectly preserves Jesus' separate identity from all eternity. Brothers and sisters, what we see in these first three verses is the trinity of a holy God. This is how we prove the Trinity to the world. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John leaves no other alternative. This Jesus, this Word, is God. He is eternal, John says. He is equal with the Father, but he is distinct from the Father. This isn't a Unitarian God. This is a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, and we know of God the Spirit uh, hovering in Genesis chapter 1. And notice what John says next in verse uh, verse 3. He says, all things were made through this word, and without this word was not anything made that was made. And so not only was the word present in creation, John says the word was active in creation. That nothing existed apart from the Son. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so John says, behold the word of God this morning. Behold him. He is eternal. He is God. He is creator. He is worthy of praise, John says. This is the introduction to the gospel of John. This is the introduction to the word who became flesh and who dwelt among us. And so now that we understand this introduction, who the word is, let us look at point number two, the mission of the word. Look in your Bibles at verse 14 very carefully. It says this, and the word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The creator enters into creation. The infinite God takes on finite flesh. The invisible God becomes visible. Jesus would later say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This God enters into creation. God became flesh. Now, now it's important for us to understand, God didn't just look around, see a dude, This dude will work to be called my son. No, that's not how God became flesh. 
God doesn't just appear as an angel that kind of looks like a person. No, no. The Bible says, Scripture says, God became flesh. The, the God of all eternity stepped into time. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. He doesn't give up divinity to take on flesh. No, he becomes God in flesh. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus we have fully God and fully man. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully. This, this incarnation, the doctrine of Jesus taking on flesh, is crucial to our understanding of salvation. You cannot deny the deity of God and just accept the, the humanity of Jesus. No, no, you can't have one without the other. He is fully God. He is fully man. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. This is why the incarnation is important. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, listen carefully, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Why does Jesus have to become flesh so that he might die for the sins of his people? That there is a penalty for sin, the author of Hebrews says, and it is paid for in the blood of God in flesh, which is Jesus. This is the mission of the Word. Why did the Word become flesh? To die for our sins. Later in chapter 1, John the Baptist cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is God in flesh. There's hope for you and I this morning. Why? Because God became flesh. And John says not only did God become flesh, which is impossible to wrap our minds around, John says he also dwelt among us. John says he was in our midst. To, to dwell, this word means to pitch a, a tent, to tabernacle with, to camp out with. John says God camped out with us in flesh. And this is pointing us back to the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, Exodus begins, God's people are in slavery to the Egyptian pharaoh. They are working hard. They are being punished under cruel slavery. And God in his mercy saves a baby boy from being killed. And that baby's boy is named Moses. And Moses, God would raise up to be a leader who would lead God's people out of the Egyptian land, right? And God, using Moses, takes him out. And then God begins to give Moses all of these instructions on to build the tabernacle, to build all of the furniture that would be within the tabernacle, the consecration of the priest, all of these things that must be followed with precision and accuracy. And in the midst of giving Moses instructions, this is what what. God tells Moses in Exodus 29, verses 45 through 46, he says, I will dwell, I will tabernacle, I will pitch my tent among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Listen, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so God makes this great promise. I'm going to dwell with my people. And at the very end of Exodus, the last paragraph of Exodus, Moses completes the tabernacle and listen to what happens next. Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. God dwelt with man. God's presence was contained, in a sense, in this tabernacle for a period of time. That God would rescue him them out of Egypt, that God would dwell with them, that he would lead them, guide them, direct them, and all they had to do was follow his presence. Brothers and sisters, as we consider God's presence in this Advent season, as we consider his presence in the book of Exodus, as we consider God dwelling with man in the life of Christ, we must also, with anticipation, look for Christ's second coming. There is coming a day where God will dwell with man again. Revelation chapter 21 uh, John says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen to the intimacy of God's dwelling with his people. Listen carefully. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, no crying, no pain. Why? The former things have passed away. And so when we consider the word becoming flesh, dwelling among God's people, you and I with eager anticipation are longing for the day when God comes to dwell once again with his people. Is that true of you? Are you longing for the return of Christ? Are you longing for the day that you might dwell with, uh, with God in flesh? He dwelt among us. And look at what John says next. We have seen his glory John says, we have seen his glory. And we can't help but turn back again to the book of Exodus. Do you remember what Moses asked God? Please show me your glory. What a bold request of Moses. Do you remember how God responds? This is, this is what God says. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But... You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Verse 23, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so when John says, we have seen his glory, the glory is of the only son from the father. John is declaring, I saw what Moses saw, but more. I've seen God's glory. John says, when you fix your eyes upon Jesus, you see the glory of God. And perhaps this morning you're looking, you're looking for God. You're looking for God's glory. And John says, fix your eyes upon Christ. Look to the word to see God's glory. We have seen his glory, John says. And then John says, God, as we consider God's glory, he says, we see him full of grace and full of truth. In verse 17, again, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This word grace is interesting. It only appears four times in this whole gospel account. And all four occasions occur right here dealing with the incarnation of Jesus Look at verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Colin Cruz says this, he says, Central to the glory of God revealed in the incarnate word is his grace. 
His favor towards people and his loving action in providing for their needs, most importantly, in affecting salvation for them. When we think about Christ becoming flesh, we think about God's grace. It is centered to the theme of salvation. Truth speaking of the reliability of God. God's words are always true. God tells no lies. John chapter 17, later on, Jesus would say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Brothers and sisters, we can trust God because he is trustworthy. He is full of truth. In fact, as we consider John chapter 1, we consider the word becoming flesh and dwelling among his people. This is a fulfillment to God's promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. That one day a seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. This is God's fulfillment to his promises. This word truth can be traced throughout the gospel of John. Most particular to us, probably the most memorable, is John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, Jesus says. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, grace and truth cannot be separated. We experience God's grace when we cling to God's truth. In a world that we live in today that says there's no absolute truth, John says, you're wrong. There is absolute truth, and that is Jesus. If you want God's grace, cling to Jesus, John says. Grace and truth cannot be separated. Jesus is truth. Notice carefully, John uses two more words as we consider the mission of Jesus, the mission of this word. He uses the words life and light. And just like grace and truth, life and light cannot be separated either. Notice verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, now the word life here, it's not the Greek word that's used called bios to speak of physical life, but it's a Greek word used to speak of a spiritual life. That in Jesus was spiritual life. This theme of life and death doesn't just start in the book of John. We see this all the way back to the beginning of creation. If you remember carefully when God creates Adam, God gives Adam one command. Do you remember what it is? Anyone? You can eat of all the trees except one. Do not partake of the fruit of this one tree, of the, the, knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, for the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Sadly, the next chapter, Adam and Eve partake of the very thing that they were told not to. They violate God's command, and they die. And you're like, whoa, Tony, they don't die. Well, not immediately they don't die, but from that moment forward, Spiritually, they are dead. Spiritually, they are in need of a Savior. And physically, one day they will die. And from this point, Genesis chapter 2, from the command, you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. On, we see the theme of life and death. Throughout narrative, we see physical death. We see spiritual death. John says, in Jesus' life. In Jesus' life, there's an escape from death, John says, and it's found in Jesus. You remember what Jesus tells Martha at the graveside of Lazarus? He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her, do you believe this? 
Do you believe this, Martha? The question is to us, do we believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That life happens in Christ. Notice he also says that, that Jesus is the light. The life brings light. Notice verse 4 and 5 again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then again in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, listen, the light of life. In Jesus, we see life. We see light. Light and life cannot be separated. These are opposed to death and darkness. Peter says we have been rescued out of darkness and brought into God's marvelous light. And John says, John says that the darkness has not overcome it. Brothers and sisters, God is light. He would say in 1 John, and in him is no darkness at all. The darkness cannot overcome the light. Why? Darkness flees when the light appears. Jesus would say in, in chapter 3 of John, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people, listen, love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their words were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so Jesus, John says, his mission was to come into the world to shine bright the glory of a holy God. That we might turn from sin, that we might trust in this word becoming flesh. So we've been introduced to the word. We've seen the mission of the word. Let us turn to the third point, the reception of the word. We see this in verses 6 through 13. As we consider the reception of this word to, God's, to, to the people, I want us to see three things. I want us to see his witness, his acceptance, and then his rejection. So first, his witness. Look at verses 6 and 8. John says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And perhaps you're like me. When you first read that, you're like, man, that's... That seems like an interjection. That seems like it just kind of breaks up the flow of thought. Why, why would John record these words here? Well, well, notice carefully the repetition of the word witness or the word testify, depending upon your translation. John the Baptist, John says, came as a forerunner for Jesus. John tells us here that John the Baptist was sent, was sent from God. The, the word sent right here, it, it comes with power. It's the word where we get the word apostle from. That the apostles were sent by Jesus to do the work of God. And John the Baptist shows us here that he comes to be sent from God. John the Baptist doesn't just scroll, roll up one day. You know, he's eating the locusts, the wild honey, weird looking dude, right? And he's like, hey, I think I can help you out, Jesus. No, that's not what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist has been sent from God to testify, to be a herald, to shout the good news. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's, John is asked at one point, he says, uh, who are you? They ask him, who are you? Are you the Christ? John says, no, I'm not the Christ. He says this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord has been prophesied by Isaiah. Notice carefully, John as a witness to the light 
to point people to the light. He's not a distraction to the light. Good witnesses aren't distractions. They simply point to the facts. I am not he. He is he. He is the light of the world. He is the one who came to die for sin. John the Baptist was sent as a witness. He says that all might believe through him. Brothers and sisters, as we consider the word becoming flesh, you and I have been called to be witnesses of this same great gospel. That just as John was sent from God to, to testify of the works of the, fathers, uh, of, the, of the Father and the Son, you and I also have been called to testify, to bear witness to this great gospel. Romans 10, 14 through 15, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? That doesn't mean preaching in the sense of what I'm doing now. And how are they to preach, to share the good news, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen carefully. In God's grace, he chooses to use us. God did not need John the Baptist. The light of the world was coming into the world. You don't need puny old John the Baptist. But in God's goodness, he uses John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, we are not needed to accomplish the will of God. But in his goodness, he uses us. In his goodness, in his grace, he allows us to partake in the goodness of witnessing, of sharing the good news of the gospel. Let us not squander these opportunities. Let us be faithful stewards, faithful witnesses of this glorious gospel. Is this true of you? Are you delighting to share and to tell of the mission of this word? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That we might have life. That we might be turned from darkness into light. There's no middle ground. There's either light or darkness. There's either life or there's death. There's no middle ground when we approach the word becoming flesh. The gospel demands a response. You cannot hear that God become flesh and walk away indifferent. You will either choose to turn to the word becoming flesh or you will turn from him. There's no middle ground. This is exactly what we see in the text. We've seen his witness, but notice his rejection in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Have you ever felt rejected? Man, what a horrible feeling. Deep down in your soul, the feeling of rejection is terrible. It's bitter. The Messiah was rejected. And you're like, man, how? The light became, he came into existence. The word became flesh. How could any reject him? Well, we shouldn't be shocked. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. God was rejected by his people. He was rejected by the world, but he was also rejected by his people. He came to his own. Listen, God brought forth the very Savior that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. 
God brings the very seed that he had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and again in Genesis chapter 17. The very son that he had promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there's coming an everlasting son who will reign, who will rule on the throne forever and ever. The very Messiah that the Jews are waiting for has come to earth. And he was rejected. He was despised. He was not received. He was not taken hold of. The very thing that the people waited for showed up and they missed it. They rejected him. This is his rejection. Unfortunately, the world today still rejects Jesus. The world is fine with some concept of God, but when you say that there is a way, a particular way to come to the Father and it is through Christ, there is rejection. There is absolute truth found in Christ. And the world today chooses to reject Christ. In him is life, and the world chooses death. In him is light, and the world chooses darkness. Notice his rejection. Matt Carter says this, he says, Jesus made our eyes, yet we refuse to see his glory. Jesus made our ears, yet we refuse to listen to his words. Jesus made our heads, yet we refuse to bow before him. But there is hope. The gospel doesn't end with the rejection. We see in our passage that not all reject the Savior. Not all reject the word becoming flesh. Some accept. Notice verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. But of God. John says to receive Jesus, to take hold of Jesus, is to believe in the name of Jesus. Well, what does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? This isn't some head knowledge. This isn't some belief that Jesus exists. James chapter 1, even the demons believe that there's a God, and they shudder. As I think about the word, you know, believing here in the name, I think of, uh, if you're, I probably should skip over this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think about the movie Peter Pan. Right, and there's a point in the movie where the, the Tinkerbell's um, t- Tinkerbell's about to die, right? And what do they say? I do believe in fairies. I do, I do, I do believe. That's not what we're talking about here. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in the totality of Jesus. This isn't believing in some sort of fairy, but it's believe in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does. His name stands for everything that He is. To believe in the name of Jesus is to accept. All of what he says. We can't pick and choose. I like what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He's preparing for me a mansion. But I want to deny the part where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. No, no, no. That's not to believe in the totality of Jesus. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in who he is and what he has done. This is the acceptance of Jesus. Notice what John says next. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege we have that the God of all creation would call us sons and daughters. Think of 1 John 3. John says, how great the Father's love for us that he has lavished it upon us that we might be called sons and daughters of God. That word lavish, man, I just think 
about barbecue sauce on a piece of chicken, man. <laughs> it's being lavished, poured out. Sorry. <laughs> it has been lavished upon us. And John says, this cannot be accomplished by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. When he speaks of blood, he's speaking of lineage. Salvation is not given to us because our parents are Christians. As Kevin says often, your nanny and your parent cannot save you. Your parents cannot save you. The fact, Tony, that you're up on stage preaching the gospel doesn't save you, Tony. It doesn't come by blood. He said it doesn't come by the will of the flesh. This is a picture of a man and a woman coming with great anticipation to try and conceive a child with great passion. We're going to make this happen. As well as the will of man, some translations say the will of a husband. It refers to a careful type planning, a man willfully planning in advance. In particular in this context, likely to speak of a husband and a wife carefully planning out the next child. Well, we have a child now in nine months. You know, we'll be financially ready. We'll have the bed ready. We'll have the, the room painted. That's, that's, that's the idea here. And John says the right to become children of God cannot happen this way. He says it does not happen because of your blood, because of the will of the flesh, nor because of the will of man. He says the way you are granted access to be called children is that you are born of God, not of flesh. There's no amount of work. There's nothing you can do, human effort, to earn salvation. John says salvation is a gift from God. James 1.18, out of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Titus uh, uh, says in chapter 3, verse 4 through 5, Paul says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And hear the tension here. Those who believe in the name of Jesus are given the right, the access to be called children of God. And this is a theme that, that John doesn't expound upon here, but we get back to it in chapter 3. You remember Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and Jesus is like, unless one is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, how am I supposed to get in my mother's womb to be born a second time? Jesus is like, you're a teacher of the law. Shouldn't you know this? And Jesus replies, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one, one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, salvation is a gift from God. And it's a gracious gift that He lavishes on His children. And the good news is you don't have to reject it. You don't have to reject it. We see those accepting, believing, receiving Jesus in this text. And some of you probably, possibly are still rejecting Jesus today. You may be hearing like, Tony, I'm not rejecting Jesus. I'm in church. No, you're rejecting the totality of Jesus. You're rejecting all that he is and all that he does. Some of you may have rejected for a long period of time and you have seen the mercy of God. That though you may have rejected for a season, by God's grace, you have accepted him now. 
This is the glory of God in salvation, that the God of this universe chooses to adopt, adopt feeble men and women into his family, that we go from being called an enemy of God to a child of God, that we are brought into the table, to the feast. We dine with the king. We, we spend time with the king. We have fellowship, First John says, with this king. This is why God becoming flesh is so important. God becoming flesh brings salvation to all who receive him, who believe upon his name. They are given the right to be called children of God, not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not the will of man, but of God. And so as we consider the, the responses, the reception of the word here, the rejection and the acceptance, we come to a conclusion, what is your response to the gospel? What is your response to the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among man? Jesus came to die. What is your response? Jesus came that you might have life. What is your response? Have you trusted in Jesus? Trusted in the, the totality of his work? Have you believed upon his name? Or have you rejected him? And I pray, man, if you're in here and you're like, man, I'm rejecting Jesus all day long. I pray that you would talk to me today. There is life to be found in Jesus that apart from Jesus, there is only darkness and death. If you're a believer in this room this morning, if you trusted in the name of Jesus, are you being a faithful witness of the gospel? Are you being a John the Baptist? Are you pointing to the Savior? It's Christmas time, so I think of this Christmas hymn. I won't sing it. I will read it for your sake. Go tell it on a mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that... Jesus Christ is born. Brothers and sisters, as faithful stewards of the gospel, let us tell people that Jesus was born. But he didn't just be born, he lived. He lived a perfect life. He died for the sins of his people. And that we can share, we can go tell on the mountain that those who will believe in the name of Jesus will find salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. And so this is the word becoming flesh. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your glory being made known among your people. Uh, Father, that you, you have spoken through your word. You have given us your word, your son, for our salvation. Uh, Father, we thank you that you sent Christ to live, to live perfect obedience, not that he would abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and all of its requirements that we might find grace, we might find salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. Well, as we read these words, it's that, that we are being granted access to be called children of God, not by blood, not by the will of man or the will of the flesh, but being born of God. Father, we pray, we pray for those in this room who who maybe are associated with Jesus but have never been born of God. I pray that you would save people for your glory. Father, as I think about our loved ones in this Christmas season, as we gather around tables with variety of people, groups, and settings, Father, help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. Help us to declare, as John did, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Be with us, equip us. Father, help us to find strength and encouragement in these words. In 
God became flesh and dwelt among us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.